the most famous event at Brotherhood Raceway involved, of all things, Star Wars. In 1977, at the height of the film's popularity, Big Willie Robinson staged a special night of races on Terminal Island with help from Lucasfilm, the production company behind the space opera. Stormtroopers were there. Darth Vader was there. No other racetrack got a visit from the official Star Wars characters. And it drew a huge crowd. The only racetrack on the planet, only Big Willie, because the people call. We have a track here in uh, Tennessee. We want Star Wars, we want Darth Vader. This is sorry. Well, Big Willie had him. Well, that's a different story. (laughs) I didn't tell George Lucas, don't do that. Don't let nobody else have him. The Star Wars event is legendary among members of the Brotherhood of Street Racers. I discussed it with Fabian Arroyo during his lunch break at work. He's a teamster and handles transportation for films and TV productions. We sat in a van featuring the logo of the Walt Disney Company, which owns Lucasfilm. But Fabian wouldn't discuss the TV project he was working on, no matter how uncanny of a coincidence it was. How weird is it that we're sitting in a Disney-owned van talking about Darth Vader and the Brotherhood down at Terminal Island, and you're working on this project? It's too... I don't know, like it's meant to be. I showed Fabian some photographs taken on the Star Wars race day. In one, Darth Vader poses with L.A. City Councilman Robert Farrell and Mayor Tom Bradley. Both politicians are wearing Brotherhood jackets. In another, Vader is striding down the drag strip beside Tucky Williams, the leader of the Crips. How big of a deal would this day have been to the Brotherhood? Big. I mean, you got everybody there. Plus, you got Star Wars nobody else had. And it was like the biggest thing going on, and it was incredible. Willie said that he had befriended Star Wars producer Gary Kurtz years earlier, when they both worked on a 1971 street racing movie called Tulane Blacktop. We gave Gary Kurtz a jacket, a street racing jacket. Gary Kurtz went and joined up with George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, the Godfather Man. And after they finished American Graffiti, George Lucas and Gary Kurtz broke away from Francis Ford Coppola, and they did Star Wars. Kurtz was on the rise. And when it came time to begin thinking about casting for Star Wars, Willie said that the producer remembered him. And Gary Kirsch told George Lucas, I got Darth Vader. Wait, is Willie suggesting that he had been in line for the role of the most infamous big screen villain of all time? Yeah. And he told Fabian it was only because of his friendship with Kurtz. That's not all Willie said Kurtz did for him. He said the Star Wars producer sent the characters to his raceway. That's how I got the characters. The Darth Vader character and the Stormtroopers. I had to find out whether Willie's Star Wars casting claim was true. My reporting took some bizarre twists and turns. And then, a tragic one. Big Willie had a surprising career in the entertainment industry. He worked as an actor, rubbed shoulders with A-listers, and appeared in some iconic 1970s films. He even influenced the Fast and the Furious movie franchise. As I delved deeper... I began to wonder why Willie was doing this. Was his time in show business meant to further the Brotherhood's cause? Or did he crave fame? This episode is devoted to Big Willie's time in Hollywood, a chapter that's essential to understanding the man he became. I'm Daniel Miller, staff writer at the Los Angeles Times, and this is Larger Than Life, a documentary podcast about L.A. street racer Big Willie Robinson.
I thought Willie's claim about having been the first choice to play Darth Vader seemed far-fetched, until I started talking to people about it. Like the man who put on the sinister black mask to portray the supervillain on that day at Brotherhood Raceway in 1977. Lucasfilm sent me as Darth Vader down to this drag race. That's Kermit Eller. He worked for Lucasfilm back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, making more than a thousand promotional appearances as Darth Vader. He said he knew Kurtz was friendly with the street racers, but Vader going to the track didn't make much sense to him. Well, I had difficulty trying to figure out what the role of Darth Vader at a street racing event is. You know, it does seems kind of outside of the character, but, you know, one makes the best out of uh, possibilities that one can do. Eller was a drag racing novice, and the scene at the track made a big impression on him. And I thought it was loud and noisy, and, and everybody had a lot of fun with it. It was pretty amazing. Huge amounts of smoke and show and hoopla. There was a second Star Wars race in 1980 after The Empire Strikes Back came out. Bunny Alsip, who served as Kurtz's assistant on Tulane Blacktop and the first two Star Wars movies, said the events were a real coup for Willie. Alsip admired his savviness. Because of the extraordinary guy he was, because of his relationship with Gary and Lucasfilm, he was the first person to use the Star Wars character to advertise his business. Really, it was very clever to know that that would be a draw. That was Willie. Always looking for an angle. Always finding a way to promote the Brotherhood and draw more people to his racetrack. When it came time to stage the 1980 event, Eller wasn't around to don the Vader suit, and he doesn't know who did. But there's a rumor that a real-life bad guy stepped in. A veteran Brotherhood member, this guy Mike Bowen, told me that the co-founder of the Crips took on the role, Tookie Williams in a Vader mask. A year after the second Star Wars race, the gangster went on trial for the murders of four people. He was convicted and later executed amid great controversy. Fabian doesn't know whether Williams really played Vader that day, but he's intrigued by the possibility. It would be actually crazy, you know? The head of the Crips in a Darth Vader suit. Well, it would fit. In footage of the 1980 event, Big Willie hams it up with the Star Wars characters. He even does some play acting with Darth Vader, warning the villain that he knows Kung Fu and that he'd hate to use some of the skills a famous martial arts master taught him, Bruce Lee. The crowd loves it. By then, Willie had been honing his chops for years. Willie was a showman in every sense of the word. A lot of that self-confidence was honed at Maverick's Flat, the nightclub where Willie said he mixed it up with celebrities like Steve McQueen and Muhammad Ali. But there was something else Willie did that helped him create and cultivate the persona of Big Willie. He pumped iron. It wasn't just for fun. Willie wanted to be a professional bodybuilder. He had worked at a gym in the late 1960s and told several publications that he was training for the Mr. America competition which drew the country's best bodybuilders. Six foot six, 300 pound Willie, he took his training seriously. One article in Drag Racing Magazine caught my eye. The 1973 story detailed Willie's ridiculous diet. He began each day with a dozen raw eggs, mixed with tang and carnation instant breakfast. I ran it by Fabian. He still did that. Oh really, a dozen raw eggs? Not a dozen, but he still did raw eggs. Oh, yeah. it, it grossed me out. <laughs> 
for all of Willie's commitment to bodybuilding, he'd fall short in the only event there's a record of him participating in, 1976's Mr. America competition. Competing in the tall category, Willie finished in sixth place, which was actually last place. The judges apparently weren't impressed, and neither was a reporter for Muscular Development Magazine, who wrote in the September 1976 issue that Willie appeared relatively muscleless and smooth, and that he should never have been allowed to compete. Ouch. He quit competing because he just didn't have time to sculpt his body to perfection. Still, his friend Steve Reyes said Willie learned something from his bodybuilding days that was really important. If you're not out there doing some self-promotion, you're just one of the guys. You know, you have the Schwarzenegger, you have the Ferrigno or whatever, and, and those guys obviously either had somebody to promote them or they self-promoted. I mean, that's where he learned some of that early on and carried over to the street deal, to the cars. And it was that street deal that caught the entertainment industry's eye. Down at the racetrack, Willie was larger than life, and that attracted attention. His own kind of celebrity led Hollywood to want a piece of him. Big Willie and the Brotherhood influenced the TV police procedural Adam-12 and appeared in Chips, and Willie even befriended one of the biggest movie stars of all time, Paul Newman. So then the next movie I did for Paramount with Paul Newman, it was a political movie called WUSA about New Orleans, my hometown. The 1970 film WUSA is about a disillusioned drifter, played by Newman, who gets a job at a right-wing radio station in New Orleans. Things spiral out of control when the station's owner sponsors a rally for white supremacists, where a riot breaks out. The story of how Willie came to be in WUSA involves Newman, himself a gearhead. I drove out to the Palm Springs area to visit the actor's sister-in-law, Patty Newman, whose husband, Arthur Newman, also worked on WUSA as the production manager. We talked about how Willie got involved. Hello. Hi, Patty. How are you? Hi, Trooper. How's it going? According to a May 1970 story in the LA Times, the filming of the White Power rally scene was scheduled to take place at the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena. But word got out in Watts that it was an actual rally for white supremacists. Trying to quell the growing and misplaced fury, Newman telephoned LA City Councilman Billy Mills, the Times reported. Then Mills called Willie, who stepped in to help smooth things over. Sitting on Patty Newman's sunny patio, I read aloud the part of the article where Willie said what he did. I explained that it was only a movie and that someone had been misled, Big Willie chuckled. Just in case, though, Big Willie and the Brotherhood handled security during the shooting of the riot scene, and there was no trouble, the article said. It also said that in a show of appreciation, Newman included some of the street racers in a riot scene shot at Paramount Studios. Quote, we had a lot of fun, Willie grinned. The article said that 100 street racers, 50 of them black and 50 white, were included in the shoot. So it doesn't surprise me at all that they would have included those guys, not just as a reward, but because they genuinely liked them and because it made perfect sense to the film, probably. It's right down the alley of the Newman family and of my late brother-in-law, for sure. Big Willie appears in WUSA's riot scene for only a fraction of a second, filling the frame. He's clad in a black vest and derby hat, and wears a look of defiance amid a sea of protesters. It was a bit part, but it was special to him. And it gave the street racer a chance to buddy up to Paul Newman on set. 
He was so comfortable around the star that he even challenged him on the accuracy of the film. Willie said he told Newman that the production had made a mistake. Police cruisers in the film were blue and white, but Willie recalled that in New Orleans, the cops' cars were black and white. And Willie said that Newman was happy to object. He said, well, that's it. When was the last time you was in New Orleans? And so I had to call my dad in New Orleans and say, Dad, what color is the police cars? He said, blue and white. <coughs> I said, Paul, you were right. You were right. Willie seems to have had a real connection with Newman, the ultimate actor-turned-racer. Newman was a decorated driver who won multiple pro competitions behind the wheel of Datsun and Nissan Zs, racing versions of the ones my family's dealership sold. And I told Patty that Willie said that he went racing with Newman. Oh, there's no question that he would have, yes. No, absolutely no question that that would have happened. Willie was just supposed to provide security for a day or two on the set of WUSA. Instead, he wound up spending time with the Newman brothers. He said he even gave them brotherhood jackets. Paul Newman died in 2008, but Arthur still has his brotherhood jacket. He's 95 and wasn't up to being interviewed, but Patty brought it out of a closet for me. All right, so tell me what we're looking at. We're looking at a heavy denim jacket, and right here it's got his name, Arthur, and this says movie organizer. And this is one of the Street Racers logo patches, new breed of brotherhood. We examine the back of the jacket. It was covered in colorful patches showing a street racer being pursued by a cop. It's got sirens and there's a stoplight. Red, yellow, green. I think he's being chased. He's being chased. Willie's or whomever is being chased. You're welcome to try it on if you want. Oh, no. It's too much. No, go ahead. I'll try it on. Yeah, there we go. I couldn't resist. The jacket was a little too big on me, and the dark blue denim was stiff and scratchy on my arms. Still, I could see how Brotherhood jacket was a kind of armor, a kind of trophy. Giving high-profile people Brotherhood jackets or vests was a shrewd move by Big Willie, because by wearing them, these people were essentially endorsing Willie and his effort. That gave him political capital. And for these recipients, the gift was a real honor. For some, it was a kind of cross-racial blessing. For others, it was an indoctrination into a world of danger and daring that they might not have otherwise experienced. Just listen to Barry McGuire. He hosted Car Crazy, the TV show that Willie appeared on in 2001. When I spoke to McGuire, he was incredibly earnest when it came to Big Willie. He brought out this vest with my name on it. And it was one of the proudest moments of my life. It was just unbelievable because it said he really he really felt the same bond that I felt with him. And we were soulmates. And he pulled that vest out. I, I, mean, I mean, that's Big Willie. McGuire is the face of a car care company founded by his grandfather in 1901. He took his namesake family business to New Heights, and sold the multi-million dollar outfit to 3M in 2008. But this humble vest, it means a lot to him. I put that vest on it. I have an emotional moment, I just gotta tell you. It was just, it was one of the highlights of my life. Really was. Big Willie made the most out of every opportunity. And there's no better example than the street racing film Tulane Blacktop. By the early 1970s, 
Willie was famous enough to inspire the plot of an episode of the cop show Adam 12. But it was Tulane Blacktop that allowed him to meet Kurtz. And even though the movie was never going to be a box office smash, it would become a kind of beacon that won Big Willie and the Brotherhood fans from all over. 1970, we did Tulane Blacktop, and we didn't know that was the first of the Fast and Furious. The producer of that movie was Gary Kurtz. We gave Gary Kurtz a jacket, a street racer jacket. The film follows two nameless characters, the driver and the mechanic, as they speed across the country, challenging locals to street races. The role of the driver is played by James Taylor, as in the fire and rain James Taylor, and the mechanic is played by Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. The minimalist movie was a total flop in 1971, but it developed a cult following. Big Willie and Brotherhood members were featured in the film's opening scene, a racing sequence on a dark and deserted road. They're inspecting the vehicles and starting the races, and they're doing it in Brotherhood jackets and vests. It's hard to make out Big Willie, but you can clearly see his Dodge Charger, the one he called the King Daytona. Ultimately, Tulane Blacktop seems to have spread the message of the Brotherhood more than any other film or show. I talked to several people whose lives were changed by the movie, including some who were eventually brought into the Brotherhood's fold. Gary French is one of them. He said the film kindled his love for street racing and introduced him to the Brotherhood. I remember when I was three years old going to the drive-in and my dad's brand new 73 340 Duster and watching Tulane Blacktop and it had an impact on my life, you know? I mean, I street race today. Street racing in general, some reason right off the rip, intrigued me. Things would come full circle for French. Decades later, he befriended Willie and ultimately acquired one of his Dodge Chargers, a ride called the Duke and Duchess Daytona. Randall Roach was another fan of the film. He saw it as an eight- or nine-year-old, and the action, the intensity, it captured his imagination. Well, my first introduction to the Brotherhood would be Tulane Blacktop, and ever since I had seen that movie, anything that came on radar in books, anything else, I read up on. I'm in my mid-50s, and that passion is still there. And when I seen that movie and seen how they were doing things, that stuck with me through my whole life. Roach never met Big Willie, but Tulane Blacktop made such an impact on him that he founded a Brotherhood chapter in Minnesota more than 40 years after seeing the movie. He said that he did it because he wanted to make racing in his neck of the woods safer and more inclusive, just like Big Willie had done. And Tulane Blacktop was the spark. I talked to Fabian about these hardcore but far-flung fans. We got to enjoy Willie because he's here in, in California. So to us, he was always here. These people got to enjoy him even though he wasn't there. And to them, he was a bigger celebrity than to us because we got to see him all the time. Willie's appearances in films and TV shows led to something else. His theme song. He always wears a derby hat. His ladies always by his side. He's six feet tall and more than that. He's ten feet tall with pride. And he says, don't you know Big Willie says, that song you've been hearing each episode, as previously mentioned, it's called Run What You Brung, and it's from the film Joyride to Nowhere. The 1977 movie is about two young women who steal a car and lead a gang of criminals on a wild goose chase. The B-movie features two musical interludes, where those runaways encounter Big Willie and the Brotherhood while they're staging a race. The other song from the movie is called Big Willie. 
I spoke to the film's lead actresses, Sandra Allen Lee and Leslie Ackerman, about their scenes with Willie. Shortly after filming, um, he know, he came over and introduced himself to me and to Leslie, and um, we were astonished on how he's like a big teddy bear. He was like the nicest guy. It certainly was clear that he was well known and respected in that venue. That's what it represented to me. That this was someone that they looked up to. This is somebody that they revered. By then, Big Willie had become a legend to those who knew him. He had made himself into a character, a force of nature who deserved a theme song. But I began to wonder if playing Big Willie was something he was doing all the time. His big smile, those fatigues, and that derby hat, all of it started to seem like a veil that made the real Willie inscrutable. So where did Willie Andrew Robinson III end and Big Willie begin? I talked about this with Van Anderson, an old friend of Willie's. Have you ever gotten tired of being Big Willie, the persona, the celebrity? He enjoyed it. But he must have appreciated the opportunity to just be Willie Andrew Robinson with you from time to time. No, you know what? Willie was Willie all the time. When I say immutable, never changing, I mean just that Willie was always Willie. It seemed like Anderson was saying that the man and the myth had become one. But that must have been a lonely existence. By their very nature, outsized personalities like Big Willie are mostly admired from afar. So how many people got to truly know the real Willie? Of course, his wife Tomiko must have. Fabian told me their relationship kept Willie grounded. But it felt to me like he got trapped playing a role, instead of being himself. What we can say for certain is Willie's life would have been dramatically different had he been cast as Darth Vader. Trying to suss out Willie's Star Wars claim, I dove deep into the history of the film. According to several chronicles of the making of Star Wars, Lucas wrote his first synopsis of the story in spring 1973 and began writing the rough draft of the script that winter. And Willie said that around this time, Kurtz, or perhaps someone else from the production team, tried to reach him. But there was a problem. Big Willie was on his nationwide tour at the time. So they tried to get in touch with me. And Tomiko and I was racing in Virginia, then went from Virginia to Florida. So this was like 72, 73, they were trying to get in touch with me, but they couldn't get in touch with me. Had mobile phones existed, Willie may have been cast as Darth Vader. And to be clear, what's being suggested is that Willie would have been the man in the black suit. No one is saying he was meant to voice the character. That role went to James Earl Jones. Really, it seemed like I needed to connect with Kurtz to get to the bottom of this. I spent months trying to track him down. I also reached out to a representative of Lucas, but the filmmaker didn't get back to me. During my search, I connected with other former Lucasfilm employees besides Eller and Alsup. None knew about Willie's casting claim. Here's Alsup, whose sister had previously been married to Kurtz. She went about as far as any of them would when it came to the Darth Vader question. 
feasible. <laughs> While I continued to seek out Kurtz, I started to wonder about what would have been had Willie gotten the part. What do you think Willie's life would have been like had he been cast as Darth Vader? Oh, a lot different. He would have had a lot more easier time getting the track open. I tend to agree, because even bit players from Star Wars spun their low-profile work on the UK shop film into cash for years to come. Willie never got rich operating Brotherhood Raceway, so every extra paycheck would have helped. The part Willie claimed he was up for went to British bodybuilder David Prowse, who just like Willie was six foot six. Prowse has profited off of Darth Vader for decades, selling autographs for hundreds of dollars apiece. You'd think Willie would have been devastated over the lost opportunity, but he played it cool, brushing it off. Well, I told Gary Kirsch, don't feel bad because Darth Vader was a bad guy, and I didn't necessarily want to be a bad guy. He wasn't good until he died. (laughs) Yeah, when he died, he became religious. As I continued to speak with the former Lucasfilm employees, they'd hint that Kurtz was dealing with a health issue and that this was why I hadn't heard back from him. Gary Kurtz died on September 23, 2018. The cause was cancer. A few months later, I spoke with his daughter, Melissa. She'd been with her dad during his final days. She had received questions I sent for him, but said she never found the right moment to mention them. Melissa is an actress and she said that she could see how Willie and her father would have bonded on the set of Tulane Blacktop. She said her dad liked underdogs like Willie. And she sees how her father might have called Willie when he needed someone for the Vader role. I think that it, it could entirely be possible just because of the way Hollywood works. There's so many random little things that happen along the way that are just totally about timing or who you bumped into at lunch. So something as long-term as hanging out on the set together. And I could see that relationship being established and being a connection there that comes back again, you know? Big Willie ultimately helped put street racing on the map, ensuring it would become part of our pop culture. These days, anyone remotely interested in street racing has seen at least one film from the blockbuster Fast and Furious movie franchise. Willie himself never appeared in these movies, but in a way, they're part of his legacy. The Universal Pictures film series launched in 2001 and has spawned seven sequels, with several more on the way. In total, the franchise has grossed more than $5 billion worldwide, making household names of Vin Diesel and the late Paul Walker. No other entertainment property has done more to boost the profile of street racing, romanticizing and amplifying the subculture, than these movies. Now, the original film source material is a 1998 Vibe magazine story about a famous street racer from Queens. And the filmmakers have never said Big Willie or the Brotherhood were an influence. But to hear Fabian and other members of the group tell it, there are some uncanny connections between those movies and their real-life organization. For example, Fabian said that parts of the first movie were shot near Willie's famed raceway. They filmed it down the street from where Term Island used to be. The final race was outside the gates of where Term Island was. There's too much that would be like a tribute to Willie. At one point... Fabian said that he and other Brotherhood members connected with some of the filmmakers in the streets. They came out to see what real street racing was about, and they ran into us unknowingly. Brotherhood members were asked to bring their cars for the filming of a scene for Fast 7, Fabian said. It didn't go exactly as planned. We scared them with the cars we brought. They said the cars were too real, too fast, but they treated us like guest stars. Despite being sidelined, Fabian says that he and other Brotherhood members appreciated the reverence the filmmaker showed for them. 
Several years before that film shoot, Willie actually found a way to pay tribute to the Fast and the Furious franchise and the impact it has had on street racing. Fabian said that Willie had a brotherhood jacket made for the series producer, Neil Moritz. And in 2009, Fabian happened to be working on a movie Moritz was making, The Green Hornet. He said he met with Moritz and presented him with his own vest. The coolest thing Neil said was, I don't deserve this. And I said, I said, Willie believes you do, because you've done more for street racing than anybody else, because now it almost legitimized it. And now it was easier to go talk to the mayor about a problem that they said didn't exist. Now it's in your face in a movie. I reached out to Moritz, but he declined to comment. I also reached out to Gary Scott Thompson, the screenwriter of the first Fast and Furious movie. Through a representative, he said that he had never heard of Big Willie and the Brotherhood. Still, Fabian and others were happy speculating about Big Willie and the group's supposed influence on the films. But I was worried I'd never be able to confirm it. That is, until I got a tip after I thought my reporting was done. I found someone who would know. Dennis McCarthy. He's a picture car coordinator. Someone who selects and builds the vehicles that appear in a movie. And he's done that for most of the Fast and Furious films. McCarthy told me that he's the one who arranged to have Fabian and other Brotherhood members bring their cars for the filming of that scene in Fast 7. It involved a huge street race. A good group of them showed up and brought some pretty awesome rides to us. In my mind, when you, when you can uh, include people like Fabian you know, into these projects, it just brings that uh, element of uh, you know, reality. There's another connection. Throughout the film series, the character of Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, drives various Dodge Chargers, including some vintage ones. So, Toretto's the leader of a group of street racers, men and women of all backgrounds who actually are do-gooders and work with the authorities to thwart bad guys, and he drives Chargers. Remind you of anyone? And in Fast and Furious 6, Toretto drives a 1969 Dodge Charger Daytona. The one where they're in Europe, they have a wing car in there. A Daytona car, red. Willie's car was red with the wing. So who's to say? Somebody there might be a fan. McCarthy was the fan. Toretto drives the exact car Big Willie drove. And the Daytona is a big part of the film. It even appeared on the movie posters. And it's in the film because of McCarthy. Coming-of-age street racing in the 1980s, he knew all about Big Willie. Though he never met the man, as a kid, McCarthy poured over stories about Big Willie and the Brotherhood in countless car magazines. That Daytona appearing in the movie? It's a tribute of sorts to Big Willie. The Daytona was a car that was, you know, my choice to put in the movie. And, you know, that's where it stemmed from. Numerous times I've looked at that red charger, Big Willie. So, you know, like I said, maybe subconsciously that's where it came from. But the guy's legacy really lives on. The legendary figure of Big Willie wouldn't be what it is today if not for his showbiz turn. At the same time, though, Willie eventually got so wrapped up in playing that role, the war hero, the street racer, the peacemaker, that it got hard to tell where the man ended and the character began. As I considered this, I wondered about Willie's Star Wars casting claim. It was an amazing story, one central to his myth. But it felt like it should have been provable, if it were true. I had to wonder whether the truth had become secondary to Willie, whether he set it aside if it got in the way of a story that might be useful to him. And then I uncovered something shocking. It looked like my suspicions were confirmed. That's next time on Larger Than Life. Oh, don't you know, big Willie says he 
Woods Crown. Larger Than Life is reported and written by me, your host, Daniel Miller, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producer is Grant Irving. The editor is Catherine St. Louis. Kimmy Yoshino is our story supervisor. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Additional production by Karin Navatia. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Turek. Music by Nolan Schneider and Grant Irving. The sound engineer is Mike Heflin. Research by Scott Wilson, fact-checking by Laura Bullard, and copy editing by Rubena Azhar. Larger Than Life was recorded at Los Angeles Times Studios in El Segundo, California. For more on Big Willie Robinson, including videos, photo galleries, and essays, visit latimes.com slash larger-than-life. Join our Facebook group. You can find us at Larger Than Life Podcast to discuss the story. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel N. Miller. You can also learn more about the story by subscribing to our Play Next newsletter. Go to latimes.com slash playnext. Larger Than Life is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. Larger Than Life is a production of LA Times Studios with support from Neon Hum Media.